something for that, do that uh, next week. All right. Well, now let's take uh, our Trinity hymn books and turn to number 60. Number 60 in the Trinity, it's the Psalm 93 that we'll be reading here in a few moments, and we will sing this together. Jason, would you ask God to bless our time together this afternoon? You be seated. 
reading of the psalm this afternoon, we come to Psalm 93. Psalm 93, which is, comes from the hymn that, or the hymn that we just sang came from this psalm. It's a psalm in which we're reminded that God is king and rules and reigns over all things. You can see the opening words there, the Lord reigns. And we have the majesty of the Lord set before us. And if you read down through this, you, we have a description of how the Lord reigns. He reigns gloriously. We see his majesty. He reigns powerfully. We see his strength. He reigns eternally. He's from everlasting. He reigns triumphantly. He is the one who is mighty. High is mighty. He's He's the one who comes with might and strength. And finally, he reigns in truth and holiness or righteousness. So here we see the reigning of our Lord. Follow now as I read. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord hath clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voices. The flood have lifted up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of the mighty waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness benefits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Oh, may God bless the reading of his word. Now, before we begin to hear the word of God, again, take your Trinity hymn books and turn to him 660. Him 660, standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command. We will sing this a cappella, and you can stand with me and maybe get yourself wake up a little bit before we come to hear the word. Please stand as we sing 660. <clears throat> standing by a
Well, if you are all warm and you've had a good lunch and you're thinking about going on home and taking a nap or getting in the pool, this message is for you. All right. Today we will continue to cover, to consider Matthew 11:12. So if you want to turn there, Matthew 11, verse 12. We will be guided by Scripture, but we will also, as a helps, be taking some of the information from a little book by the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson, Heaven Taken by Storm. Uh, Jonah was nice enough to purchase a few copies of this little book They're on the back table back there, so you might be interested in reading it. Or after I get done, you may decide you don't want to read it. So Let's uh, go, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you have called us together this afternoon that we might hear from your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us through your spirit Do not add anything to your word, nor subtract anything from it, and that it might bring you glory and honor. Lord, open our hearts, our ears, help us to be attentive to what you have for us this afternoon, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Looking at this uh, passage here, Matthew 11 and verse 12. I want to step back and and look for a moment at verse 11. Again, to kind of bring us up to speed, to give us a little bit of context. Jesus here is uh, commending John the Baptist. He's commending him. John, of course, was sent by God on a mission Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Verse 11 says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The mention of Elijah was to clear the way. John's mission was to clear the way, to prepare a way for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist, of course, was a type of Elijah. At first, or um, at, at Christ's first advent, Matthew three one says, "Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord.'" Make his paths straight. 
John came baptizing with water for repentance. And he announced that the Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. He said, uh, so John fulfilled his mission. Turn, if you would, just for a moment to John 3, John 3, 29 through 31. John 3, 29 through 31. And using the NAS, the passage reads, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands and listens for him and is overjoyed to hear the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So again, Christ commends John for his work, saying in verse 11 of Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he says, yet, the, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Upon free first reading of that verse, it, you think about that for a minute and say, how could that be? After Christ's strong commendation of, of John. Well, the answer lies in this, I think. And as I mentioned the last time we spoke on this, the reason that is is because John, though he was great, he was not born again under the new covenant. He lived and died before the completion of Christ's work at the cross and empty tomb. And therefore, he did not enjoy the benefits of the new covenant. Now, all believers after the cross are greater still because we participate in a full understanding, a full understanding, and experience something John merely saw in a shadowy form, this amazing grace. And so... We can begin to see then what Jesus is implying by saying that that even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Again, from last time, we read that Charles Spurgeon wrote regarding verse 11, as we may say as a rule that the darkest day is lighter than the brightest night. So John, though first of his own order, is is behind the last of the new or gospel order. The least in the gospel stands on higher ground than the greatest under the law. Now moving on to our focus text, Matthew 
11, verse 12, is this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. I was talking the other day to a gentleman, and uh, well, I'll tell you who he was. He was he was one of my many doctors, and uh, I won't tell you his name. But I discussed a little bit with him uh, about some spiritual things. Like I started off, like now, where do you attend church? And he said, well, he had attended a particular church here in Adrian years ago. And over time, he says, I do what probably a lot of people do is I backslid. He says, and I haven't been in years. And uh, anywhere, somewhere along the line, we were talking, and I, I shared with him that uh, because we were talking about some paralysis that I still have, and I told him that I would be doing a message on Sunday afternoon, and uh, I have been able to talk a little more clear. And uh, so in that context, he said, what is your message, what text is your message going to be on? And I said, well, beyond Matthew 11, 12. And, uh, and I mentioned to him that uh, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And he kind of looked at me and he chuckled. And he said, well, you know, they really were violent back in those days, weren't they? And, and you see, that was, he missed the point a little bit. Because just the word of violence, and we think about violence in today's culture, and what a great effect it's had on our society and getting worse all the time. Violence. But now what does scripture mean when it speaks of violence? One thing I found out that you have to study when you're studying the word of God, you look at different versions because they use different words. And if you go to Strong's Greek Dictionary, or Greek's uh, Concordance, uh, it, it'll tell you uh, what that what that meaning was in context of the verse that you read. So what does scripture mean when it speaks of this violence? Well, it's a holy violence. It's a holy violence. Violent in Strong's Greek, number 973, and I'm probably butchering this, but it says, V-S-T-I. And that means a forceful, violent man. One who is eager in pursuit. From Viazzo, he is a forcer. He's energetic. And so that's, that's where we see this word violence. And that has, that, that's what it means in this context. So we must be violent for some things. We must be violent, first off, for the truth. Violent for the truth. You remember Pilate asked Jesus, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but he said, what is truth? What is truth? Well, truth is either the blessed word of God, which is called the word of truth, or it is those doctrines that are deduced from the word and agree with it, 
Thomas Watson says, agree with it as the dial with the sun or the transcript with the original, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of free grace, justification by the blood of Christ, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of resurrection of the dead, and the life of glory. These truths we must be violent for. We must eagerly pursue them and search for them with all of our heart. And when we find them, we cling to them. We cling to the truth. We might even want to be advocates for the truth. When we hear error, it is okay for a Christian to speak up and says, the Bible says and be ready to defend it. They call that apologetics. Violent for the truth. Truth is like a, like a trumpet, or excuse me, like a triumphant uh, great conqueror when all his enemies lie dead. 1 Peter 1.25, but the word endures forever. Truth is the seed of the new birth. God does not regenerate us by miracles or revelations. You know, a lot of people are under the misconception that you can be born again, that you can be saved, that you can become a Christian in any number of ways. And it is not true but by the word of truth, says James 18. It says, in the exercise of his will, he gave us birth by the word of truth. You've heard of the verse, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of, of God. Truth sanctifies. That's why we need to to search it out with all our heart because it sanctifies us. It sets us apart for the Lord. John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Truth gives us comfort. In Psalm 119, 50, David writes, This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Another reason truth is so valuable. Truth is the antidote against error. Truth is the ground of our faith. It shows us what we are to believe. We are to live by that book. Mr. Watson asked this, he says, what then should we be violent for if not for the truth? He says, we are bid to contend earnestly as in agony for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Contend earnestly or in agony. We must be violent for our own salvation. This is so important. Violent for our own salvation. 
Second Peter 1.10 says, Give diligence to make sure your calling and election are sure. This is too serious to not go after with violence. It's too serious. Again, quoting Mr. Watson, the Greek word for diligence signifies anxious carefulness or a seriousness, bearing of one's thoughts about the business of eternity. Such a care as sits head and heart at work. It is this channel of religion all Christian zeal should run to. There are uh, three things implied in this holy violence. Number one, what is implied is resolution of will. You know, I like like where David said, and I believe it's chapter 8 of Daniel, or Daniel said, says, and Daniel purposed in his heart to not defile himself with the king's choice food and wine. He purposed in his heart before he was met with that temptation, something I find difficult to do. You know, we, we have temptations that come, and, and oftentimes we Christians are the least prepared to face them. And we know they're coming because we live in a fallen world. And all our temptations are common to all of us. We all face the same ones. And yet we don't prepare ahead of time on how we're going to face it. And if we could just do that, it would make it so much easier to resist Satan. The Bible says if we resist him, he will flee. But what happens so often times is we like to toy at the edges of sin. And as you're getting up on that edge, we're too apt to fall in the more we tease ourselves. So with zeal, we should have resolution of will. We should have prepared hearts and minds to face this. That's what the armor of God is all about in Ephesians 6. You must be prepared. Sometimes you know, pastors will tell you, you know, put it on every day. Wake up first thing in the morning. Put on you know, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the girdle of truth, the, the, the sandals of the preparation of the gospel of peace, and then you hold the sword of, of truth. And they say, put it on first thing every day. Well, I say, keep it on. Just keep it on. And uh, so that's another thing we need to have a little more violence for, a little more eagerness, pursuit. Second thing that is implied is vigor of affection. Let me back up just for a moment. I'm thinking about Psalm 119, 106. This is what David said. He says, I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous judgments. I will keep them. Not perfectly, but I will keep them. That's my goal. I will have heaven whatever it costs. If it costs me my life, my physical life, I'm willing. I will have heaven. 
and it won't be stopped. And this resolution must be made in my strength? No, it must be made in the strength of Christ. Uh, we can do nothing without him. The Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who what strengthens me. Thomas Watson said this about this uh, resolution. He said, if a traveler is unresolved, sometimes he will ride this way and sometimes that, and he is violent for neither. Reminds me of an old saying that I've heard since I was a teenager at least. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And then we have violence of affections. When the will is resolved upon a voyage to that holy land, now the affections follow and they are on fire in passionate longing after heaven. Psalm 42, verse 2, says this. David says, My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And in third, this violence implies strength of endeavor. Strength of endeavor. Striving for salvation as though it were a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. Quoting now from, again, Mr. Wasson, he says, You know, it's easy to talk of heaven, but not to get to heaven. We must put forth all our strength and call in the call in the help of heaven to this work. Put forth all our own strength and then call for the help of heaven to this very work. Lord, help me in this endeavor. We never take it for granted. And sometimes I think we as Christians take some things for granted, some serious things. The Christian must offer this holy violence namely in four ways. He must offer holy violence to uh, himself, offer holy violence to myself, to the world, offer a holy violence to the world and to Satan. And that sounds a lot like the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then finally, even to heaven itself, must offer holy violence to heaven itself. Again, Watson says, the Christian soldier must offer violence to himself. This self-violence consists in two things, mortification of sin and provocation to duty. Mortification, putting to death sin, and provocation to your duty as a Christian soldier. 2 Timothy 2.3, I love this verse. It says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And you can see this theme of uh, soldiers and army and, um, you know, horses and chariots led by our Lord Jesus. And you can see this pictured throughout Scripture. 
the use of this soldier, this military idea. Offering violence to oneself in a spiritual sense consists in mortification of sin. Self is the flesh. Turn, if you would, real quick to Galatians 5.17. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh sets its, its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. The flesh. Watson says the pampering of the flesh is the quenching of God's spirit. Pampering of the flesh. We tend to pamper ourselves. There is a party within that will not pray, that will not believe, and the flesh inclines us more to believe a temptation than a promise. Colossians 3.5 says this, says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed which amounts to idolatry. Romans 8 18 says, for if you are living according to the flesh you must die but if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. There is even within the best of Christians always something that needs mortifying. You know, Bible tells us, teaches us to go look in the mirror at ourselves, but we're not to turn away and just go on as if we, we didn't see that our hair needed combing or that we need a little makeup. Um, so we need to mortify things such as pride, envy. You ever suffer from envy? Lust of all kinds. I've said for years that in my own case here, and I think of it every time I'm out in the yard pulling up a dandelion, you can't just come along and cut the top off. You've got to dig it out by the root. So it takes a little more effort. And that's what we need to do in our sin life. It must be an aggressive dealing with sin, not a procrastination, but dealing with it right now. Simply put, all the... uh, well, I take that back. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from all fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And so the question is, how do we do that? This offering of violence to ourselves by mortifying, putting to death the sins of the flesh. Watson writes, Withdraw the fuel that may make Lust burn. Withdraw the fuel. Avoid all temptations. They who pray that they may not be led into temptation must not lead themselves into temptation. Lead themselves into temptation. We need to run to the promise in Romans 6.14. For sin shall not Be master over you, for you are not under the law. But what are we under? We're under grace. 
We are to beg strength of Christ. Again, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The second thing in offering violence to a man's self is provocation to duty. We must do this when we excite and provoke ourselves to that which is good. In scripture, this is called stirring up of ourselves to take hold of God. That's found in Isaiah 64, 7. Stirring ourselves up. Again, quoting Thomas Watson, in respect to the sluggishness of our hearts to that which is spiritual, blunt tools need wetting, wetting or sharpening. Our hearts are dull and heavy in the things of God, and therefore we need to spur them on and provoke them to that which is good. Kind of like going to a football game, you know, it seems to me that, or a basketball game, it seems to me like it is, it is uh, pretty easy to get ourselves stirred up for the home team. Many times I watched the University of Michigan play football, and, and it was pretty easy for me to get uh, in there with that crowd and get up and cheer them on. They score a touchdown, and you revel in that, and, and all of us are packed in, and we're stepping on one another and, and getting excited. And, and you know how many times you hear before the game, I'm really fired up today. Well, if you can do that for a football game, why can't we do it for Jesus Christ? Think about it. Our great and awesome God. I think he's a little bit more than a football game. When we pray, the, the, even when we pray, the flesh resists. When we should suffer, the flesh draws back. How hard it is sometimes to get the consent of our hearts to seek God. Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. The exercise of God's worship is contrary to nature. And therefore, says Mr. Watson, there must be a provoking of ourselves to them. He says... The motion of a soul to sin is natural. And I think we kind of touched on that earlier today. It's natural for us to sin. But it is, but its motion toward heaven must be violent. The stone moves easily to the center. It has an innate propensity downward, this heavy stone. But to draw up a millstone into the air is done by violence because it is against nature. So to lift up the heart to heaven in duty is done by violence and we must provoke ourselves to it. When we talk about some time, we mention to prepare your hearts for worship. Well, what does that mean to you? But provoking our hearts for worship involves a number of things, but it, in, it involves a concentration, a stillness of the heart, and a focus and a mindset. I'm here to worship my mighty Lord. Look at the things he did for me this week. So I'm here to worship this great and awesome God that created the universe, which is 
infinity. There's trillions and trillions of miles of things that we can't wrap our mind around. Well, we're here to worship him. Provoking ourselves to duty, that is the awakening of ourselves and shaking off this spiritual sloth. Psalm 57, 8 through 9. Listen to David's words. I love this. He says, Awake, my glory. Awake, heart, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. You come in here with that attitude, do I? I'm going to awaken the dawn today. I will praise you, Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. David found a dullness in his soul, and therefore he provoked himself to duty. Again, using this football analogy, you know, I I played high school football, and uh, it hurts to play football. And yet we love it for some strange reason. But it hurts. I mean, if a big guy's, you know, 200 pounds coming right at you with the ball and, and you've got to make a decision pretty quickly of what you're going to do, your coach will tell you what to do, and that is to, to bury him right there, to stop him. And it hurts when you do that. So there's a lot of provoking of oneself in that silly game. But we need to provoke ourselves. Um, Psalm 108.1, a song, a psalm of David. He says, My heart is steadfast, God. I will sing. I will sing praises also with my soul. So from deep within. It wasn't just through his mouth, but he was singing from his soul. Again, Mr. Watson writes, Though Christians are raised from the death of sin, yet often they fall asleep. Provoking ourselves to duty implies uniting and rallying together all the powers of one's soul, setting them on work in the exercise of religion. There must be, when we come into this place, there should be an intenseness of spirit. Say so you, you forget about lies, what lies behind and you, and you stretch forward into that which is ahead, said Paul. And there are a number of duties of Christianity wherein we must provoke and offer violence to ourselves. And Mr. Watson will name seven, not now, but he will name seven in the coming chapters of heaven taken by storm. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, how wonderful is your word. And in your word is is truth. Help us, Lord, to be more earnest and steadfast and energetic in pursuit of your truth. Help us, Lord, to provoke ourselves to good works. Help us, Lord, to use every minute of the day spent in worship of you, in living in your presence. We ask that you would help us, Lord, in this coming week. Many of us face many challenges, many hardships, health issues, financial, relational relational problems and, and difficulties. And, Lord, we can do nothing without you. So, Father, we, we thank you what you are going to do. And we will praise you 
whatever you decide. We are your children, and we have an awesome Father. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we, we truly are creatures of comfort. And we like things easy. And to, to think about taking something by violence is, is really something we're strangers to. But as Ken was speaking about that, the, the, the image popped in my mind of the, the old wars. Remember the old wars? I mean, now it's nuclear and you push a button and, you, and so forth. Remember the old Remember the Civil War? Men would stand one side, another group would stand on the other side, and someone would yell, Charge! And you would just run with all your might to face your foe. And, I mean, I didn't live in those days, but I've seen movies. And, and you see this determination on their faces that they're going to go after this. And they're going to be victorious. And, and I would think, they're thinking, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. And, and that's the picture, the image that came to my mind as Ken was setting those things before us. We don't like that. But that's what we need to be doing, pursuing holiness, pursuing the truth, pursuing heaven with that charge mentality that we will not be stopped because we've been given a charge. Now, in light of that, see, I don't want to re-preach what he said, but, you know, I am a preacher, so but I appreciate that, Ken, very much. But in closing, let's take our hymn books, the Hymns of Grace, and turn over to Hymn 420, Hymn 420. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify. 420. Maybe, Julie, if you could play this all the way through once and then we'll sing it, all right?
deserves an amen. You are dismissed.